Thank you, Bishop. Um, indeed, we've had a long, long friendship, and it's been a great deal to me. In the 50 years I've been a member of this annual conference, we've had lots and lots of bishops, two great bishops, and Bishop McKee, Michael McKee, is one of them. And one of the greatest things he has done, from my perspective, is as a friend of Christ United Methodist Church. We just couldn't uh, have had any bishop that's been more supportive of us. The thing I want to thank you for the most, Bishop, is appointing Chris Dowd to be my successor here at Christ United. Uh, I, 20 months ago, I preached my last sermon. It was, the, it was Palm Sunday. It was three weeks after we shut down. And I handed over to Chris, and it's just been amazing to see his leadership and the leadership of the staff. I had a ringside seat, and it's just been remarkable. So I want to thank you for sending Chris. Every now and then someone will come up to me and say, you know, Don, you've been at Christ United for 37 years, and it seems to have gone pretty well. Um, what was your secret? And I have the same answer. I told this last week at Pat Messick's concert. Through the years, I've developed just one singular skill, and that is the ability to um, hire good people, recognize good talent and hire good people, tell them to go to work, and then take credit for everything they do. <laughs> and that is true of Todd Harris, and uh, other, I think Margie McNear's out here someplace. The remarkable staff that we've had through the years. There's just no way uh, to say uh, thank you for all of, of what they have done. I really stand here uh, because of them. I want to circle back around to uh, the appointment of Chris Dowd. I want you to know, uh, Bishop, that when people thank me, they say uh, thank you for bringing uh, Chris Dowd to Christ Church, I tell them as well, you know, I didn't do it by myself. The bishop made the appointment, and uh, the staff parish committee and Steve Johnson, they had a role in it, but it was mostly me. Uh, <laughs> choir and musicians, you're singing my favorite music today, by the way. Thank you, Jason and Brian. For almost 40 years, you have had my back, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> and I want you to know that I know it. And we could not be where we are without the remarkable music ministry of this church. Will you join me? I'm thanking them for 40 <laughs> Well, it feels weird to be in the pulpit again. I, I have I thought a lot during this past weekend about Simone Biles. I think I know what happened to her. The pressure <laughs> can uh, get pretty, uh, can get up there. Uh, I, I thought about asking Chris for a mental break. Can we just skip this part, you know, for my mental health? But uh, somebody says, if you learn how to ride a bicycle, you always remember how to ride a bicycle. We'll see if that is true. Uh, about the sermon. I uh, picked one of my favorite passages today. It's really the story about the beginning of faith and the life of the church. Chapter 12 of Genesis, when God comes to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was 26 years old, I was serving First Methodist Church in Sherman, Texas as an associate, the church that Chris came to us from as senior minister. I was single. I'd been there two or three years. The bishop came to me and said, Don, I want you to go and be the senior pastor at the Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas. I said, where? <laughs> he said, Frisco, Texas. I had grown up in North Dallas since I was seven years old. I had no idea where Frisco, Texas was. I'd never heard of Frisco, Texas, believe it or not. This was 1975. Well, I thought I would check it out. I got in my car and drove down Highway 289 from Sherman to Frisco. Frisco at the time had a population those of you who haven't been around for a long time aren't going to believe this. The population, total population, was 1,800. And I turned west and went down the main street of Frisco, and this was my reaction. I have never, ever, ever been to a sorrier town than this one. <laughs> it was just a pitiful-looking town. I got to 6th Street, I turned to 6th Street one, one block, I saw the church, it was an old, old church, it was okay. But I also saw the parsonage next door to the church. It was a little frame cottage. I would later learn no heating or air conditioning, one window unit, no disposal, no dishwasher. I finally figured out the reason they sent me there is because I was single. They knew they couldn't get a woman to, to uh, <laughs> move in there. I was utterly disappointed. I drove back to Sherman. I remember calling my father and I said, Dad, I, I think I picked the wrong profession. I told him about my experience at Frisco. I said, I don't want to go there. And my father, who was very wise, said, well, son, whatever you think. And that's the way he left it. There were extenuating circumstances. I needed a job. <laughs> and so I hatched out this plan. I thought, I'm going to go down to Frisco. It's close to Dallas. I was single. That was a good thing, I thought. I go down to Frisco, and I'm going to give them three months. I'll work through the summer. I'll be able to look for another job. And when September gets here, I'll get a new job. So on the day I was getting ready to move, back then, single men, didn't, we didn't have furniture or anything. I just had some clothes, a stereo system, and a tennis racket. I went to John Dannel, my good friend in, in Sherman, he owned Dannel Funeral Home, and I said, John, do you mind if I borrow one of your panel trucks to move in? He said, no, it'll be fine. He loaned me this big purple panel truck that they transported flowers in. It said Dannel Funeral Home across it. <laughs> I threw all my stuff into that panel truck, and I drove down 289, turned on the 6th Street, and got ready to turn into the little 
dirt driveway of the parsonage and I looked up there and there were a group of people standing in the front yard of the parsonage. I, I hadn't expected anything like that. I was wearing an old pair of boots, dirty jeans, a dirty work shirt. It turned out it was the Pastor Parish Committee. <laughs> so here they see me pulling in a purple panel truck with the words Daniel Funeral Home across it and I got out and had to meet. That was the way I met the Pastor Parish Committee. It would be years before I discovered that my disappointment at being sent there was nothing compared to <laughs> During the next months, the farmers all brought me fresh vegetables out of their gardens. The women brought me home-baked pies. And the clincher when Labor Day rolled around, the men took me to the best dove hunting pastures in North Texas. <laughs> and I'd found a home. I'd found a home. It was in Frisco, of course, where I met my wife, Bobby, my in-laws, some of whom are here today, who became so important in my life. And in many ways, Frisco still is my home. You see, we as human beings are not very good at making plans. I had a plan. I'd made a plan. But God had a better plan. Isn't that what we see when we turn to Genesis here? We see the story of Abram and Sarah. If you read carefully the story about Abraham and Sarah, these were not poor people. They were not homeless people. They had built a great life. They, Abraham was wealthy. He had cattle and horses and camels and sheep. He had servants. He had land. He planned out his life. He'd done it well. He had everything except the son that he had always wanted. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to pick up everything you have, all your belongings, your family, your animals, your wealth, and I want you to go on a journey, and I want you to just trust me. And this is our first story of faith in the Bible. Abraham traded in his plan for God's plan. That was the beginning. What a story. In 1983, the spring of 1983, God came to me and said, I want you to pick up all your stuff. We were in Burke Burnett at the time. Pick up your family and all your stuff, move south. I said to God, it was actually the bishop that came to me. Is, is there a difference? <laughs> Pick up all your stuff and go down to a suburban church, Christ United in Plano, Texas. I didn't have any plans to do that whatsoever. But we loaded up all of our stuff. Had to walk quite a bit more now by that time. Had a wife and children. We came down to Plano. The first meeting, fortunately, I didn't have to meet the Pastor Parish Committee in the driveway of the old parsonage. But the first meeting I had at, in Plano was before we even had the first worship service. It was a Wednesday night. I think we moved in on Monday or Tuesday. On Wednesday night, I went down to the church for a meeting of the building committee. The church was about halfway in between finishing 
a sanctuary. The sanctuary was in the drive, but wasn't complete by any means. And somebody called me and said, you need to go to a building committee meeting. So I got up, dressed the way I usually do, jeans, boots, and a shirt, and drove to the church and found this committee, the building committee. I'll never forget it. It was, these were really the founders of the church, great human beings. Charlie Cox, Keith Sockwell, Ernest Rainey, Steve Hudnall, the architect Jerry Vincent was there. They were all dressed in uh, tennis outfits, except for Steve. Back in 1983, tennis was big in Plano. You may remember this. And it didn't make any difference whether you played tennis or not. When you came home from work, took off your suit, you put on tennis outfits. So every, <laughs> you did. <coughs> so everybody had on white tennis shorts and Adidas tennis shoes and Izod shirts. So I walked in. I was the only one in jeans and boots, except for Hudnall. He was a contractor. He built roads and bridges. And he had on old jeans and boots and an old work shirt. Well, the agenda that night was to pick out chandeliers for the new sanctuary. And Jerry Vincent, the architect, had brought a bunch of catalogs. And so they started passing around these catalogs, looking through them, trying to find uh, suitable chandeliers for the, for the sanctuary. And it was tough. I remember Charlie looking, I don't like these, I don't like these. There were four or five of these big catalogs. And they just kept passing them around. They didn't like any of the chandeliers. Until finally, I think it was Charlie who said, well, what about this one? I think I like this one. This one looks okay. And he handed it to Keith, and Keith said, yeah, that looks good. And went around to Ernest and around. It finally ended up with Steve Hudnall. And Steve looked at this catalog, and I do not exaggerate. He took it, and he just pitched it into the middle of the table. And then he uttered a minor expletive, I think he meant it as a kind of theological statement. I don't know. <laughs> he said, hell, I've been in bars that had better looking chandeliers than that. <laughs> Look, I, I don't make up these stories. I just tell them the way they happen. <laughs> I went home that night and I came to the door and Bobby said, how was your meeting? I said, it was okay. There's this one guy I really like. <laughs> Steve Hudnall was probably for two decades a youth counselor. He was the greatest youth counselor in the history of Methodism. I do not exaggerate here. And for one reason, all of the youth, both boys and girls, simultaneously adored him and feared him. <laughs> when Steve Hudnall said, all right, let's settle down now, believe me, they settled down. And that was the beginning of the greatest journey of my life. The truth of the matter is, I liked all of those guys, and I would come to know and love all the members of Christ United. But I have to tell you, it wasn't in my plan. I'd grown up down at First Methodist Church downtown. I'd grown up in a downtown church. I'd served county seat church and rural church. I never, ever thought I would serve a suburban church. It was never part of my plan to stay in one place for 37 years. It was never part of my plan to do much of what we have done in the past 37 years. But you and I aren't very good at making plans. I had a plan. God had a better plan. 
Look, this is just who we are as human beings. We like to be in control of life. I don't care how strong your faith is. I don't care how much time you spend reading the Bible or in prayer or how often you go to the church. This is just the way we are as human beings. We want to be in control of how we live our lives. You've heard me say this a lot of times before. I think maybe part of it is the way we grow up listening to those fairy tales. You know, the fairy tales always ended up in exactly the same way. The princess marries the prince. There may have been a lot of things that took place in between. But we always remember how it ended, don't we? And they lived happily ever after. They lived happily ever after. That's the way you and I think about life, isn't it? We want to be in control of our life. We want to plan out life on our terms so that we can live happily ever after. It's just human nature. And so we think, if I can just get out of high school, get my, my high school diploma, I, I'll, be, I'll be fixed for life. I'll be happy forever. And then when we finish high school, then something else happens. And we say, well, and when I get my job or when I get my college degree, then I'll be happy forever. And you know how this goes. Then we say, I've got to get the, the right job. Or if I can just find the right spouse, marry the right person, I know that my life will be happy and fulfilled ever after. That's what we do as human beings. We plan out life so we can be in control, so we can reach that point where we know we will be happy forevermore. We plan for the perfect pandemic. We plan for the perfect reti retirement, and we get a pandemic. We plan for the first year and a new appointment. I remember telling Chris, I can't wait for you to preach to 4,000 people on Easter Sunday. And we get a pandemic. That's just the way life is. I've said it many times before. We like to plan out things, and we have a little bit of control in our lives. Make no mistake about it. But the things that really change our lives are the things that come out of the blue. The phone call in the middle of the night, the doctor's visit that turns up an unexpected diagnosis, or the pandemic that slams us all. I think that maybe the greatest journey story ever told is the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. In some ways, it's similar to God going to Abraham. God goes to Moses. Moses is out there in the hills of Midian. He's quit. He's ready to be. He's done. He doesn't want to do anything but just be a person that's taking care of the sheep. And God says, look, my people in, are in trouble in Egypt. They've been enslaved. I want you to go and turn them loose. And so Moses finally says yes to God. Okay, God must have a better plan than I. He goes and leads the people out of Egypt onto the track that we now know took 40 years in the wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the holy land, the land of Canaan. And it's a great story. I've oftentimes thought that if a fiction writer could get that story and write it, you know, in language that would be a little bit more accessible to you and me. Chris has read the story so often it didn't bother him, he could read it in Hebrew. But for you and me, it can be a little challenging reading through the whole story of the Exodus. But if a fiction writer got it and wrote it as uh, historical fiction, it would be one of the greatest novels ever, ever printed, ever written. Because there would be, you know, it would start off with the dividing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. 
that dramatic scene, the people leaving slavery, leaving Egypt, and then all of the intrigue on the road, the little rebellions, Moses getting the Ten Commandments, all those things taking place. And you and I, if we had that in a, a really good fiction format or historical fiction format, we would just keep turning the pages and turning from one chapter to the next because we would already know what the ending was. The people were going to end up in the Holy Land. In the Holy Land. And we wouldn't be able to wait to, to get to that final chapter to see them cross over into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and live happily ever after. Except that's not what happened, is it? That's not what happened at all. They get to Canaan, they get to the Holy Land, but it turns out to just be the start of another leg of their journey. I've thought about this a lot. I challenge you. You can read throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, and until you get to the 21st chapter of Revelation, you are not ever, ever, ever going to find one story about any follower of God who just lives happily ever after. That's not the way life is. God challenges us to live faithfully, faithfully, but not necessarily happily ever after. There's a great story in the New Testament. Jesus takes his inner circle, the lead disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter takes them up to a mountain. We call this the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they get up there, something happens that we can only refer to as a mystical experience, I think. They get up to the top of the mountain, and suddenly Elijah is there, and Moses is there, and Peter and these other disciples think that they have finally reached heaven. I mean, this is too good to be true. And then suddenly the voice of God descends and says, this is Jesus with whom I am well pleased. And Peter thinks that he's finally gotten to the last chapter, to the moment where they can live happily ever after. And he turns to Jesus and he says, this is where we want to spend the rest of our lives. I can build shelters for you and Elijah and Moses. Let's stay here. And Jesus says, nope. Got to go back down the mountain. Hit the road again. We're going to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't have the heart to tell him at the time. But Jesus knew that the journey would not end until they got to the cross. Until they got to the cross. What does it mean to live faithfully on the challenging journeys that God gives us? What does it mean for you and me to enter each new phase of life by saying yes to God? There's a little passage in the New Testament that we hardly ever read, and yet it's a great, great passage. And what's odd about it is it's in one of the most famous chapters in the entire New Testament. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first one, the 13th chapter about love. 
And about two-thirds down through, you're familiar with most of it because we read that chapter a lot at weddings, don't we? We love, we love the chapter about love, right? But a lot of times we read it and we just take out this part, and it's such a powerful part. About two-thirds of the way down, Paul kind of switches gear, and he says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then reflecting back on his own journey, all of the beatings and the shipwrecks and the imprisonments, all of the mistakes, he reflects back on his own journey and then he says, now that I'm a man, I understand that there are only three ways to live your journey with faithfulness. With faith, with hope, and with love. These three abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. After 20 months of the pandemic, I think maybe God finally has our attention. We've been distracted by so many things that aren't very important. We've been so childish and immature with our bickering and our squabbling and our fooling around with life. Maybe God finally has our attention. I don't know any way to share my final words with you today better than by sharing Paul's words. As we move forward, in our journey, each of our individual journeys, as we move forward in the journey as a church, let us do so knowing that there are only three things that abide. Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love.